Welcome to the Software Lifecycle Stories podcast. We bring you stories of what worked and sometimes what did not in the course of discovering, designing, developing, delivering and using software-based solutions as shared by practitioners who went through these situations. Welcome to this episode of the Software Lifecycle Stories. I am Shivaguru. Today, I am in conversation with Vandana Abraham, Head of Design at Atlassian India. In this conversation, she shares her perspectives on the difference between design and art, aptitudes to be a designer, building experiences for a global audience, and some ideas that were far ahead of their time designing for the future and design as a career for women listen on hi vandana welcome to the show ux has been you know one of my favorite topics also you know in terms of uh, the software life cycle it is not only about the creation but it is also about the consumption the moment you talk about consumption coming after creation i think we have it wrong so looking at what needs to be consumed and then how one can do that Um, so i am really thrilled to have this conversation because i don't know what you are going to talk about so it will be good if you introduce yourself first and then let's see from the top of your mind whatever you have we'll see how the conversation flows great um, glad that uh, you know i'm really glad to be here and get a chance to speak uh, to a wider audience on the passion that's been driving me for a while i currently head design uh, software user experience design at atlassian and i've had about 18 years of experience in the software space in design designing experiences in software and prior to that i did design um, hardware or physical fabric for users for about 5 years so it's been a long time spent building consumable things for people virtual and physical and the point that you just made which was uh, you know creating something and then getting it consumed designers rarely think of it that way mm-hmm. we worry about all the things that are not being done right and then figure out ways of how to set that right or mm-hmm. put it in front of people so it's it's if you took the analogy of of cooking and food we don't start by saying let me cook something and find someone to eat it <laughs> you actually start the other way uh, what do people like to eat what are people what are the things that people don't like to eat in a restaurant what are the things that bother them when they're eating and we try and make sure that that gets addressed in providing them a great experience uh, in in eating and consuming the food so okay good uh, so this actually uh, i mean this a point of view whenever someone is very creative hmm. even this we notice that there is a certain amount of uh, Uh, I can't find anything other than ego. Mm. Probably, I mean, they have their own styles. Uh, mm. you know, either they have a following, or they say this is what I have to offer. Including some restaurants where some chefs say that this is my signature dish. Now I do this, or yeah. everybody you know loves to quote Steve Jobs for design, and he says now I know what they need. Right? Mm. So, what is your take on that? So, fundamentally, I believe the object of design. is to try and solve for someone else's problem and not necessarily yours um 
partly what we call self-expression in art has its place because that's where you express your own creativity and, and if you are very skilled in a particular kind of task, that creativity and self-expression and that becomes art that many people would love and appreciate. So whether it's styling a vehicle right, in, in the form or it's in the kind of garments and clothing that you would make, which that, that combination of what purpose you try to do, which is the clothes, and then your skill and self-expression as art, which gives it style. And then people develop love or um, attraction for that. So I think it has a very strong place in design. It's, uh, but it's not necessarily something that every designer is able to do to that degree. And similarly, when you do it more for your own expression, rather than for the purpose of some other, for someone else to consume, then it becomes more of art, in which case, you know, whether someone actually uses it or not, you have satisfied your purpose yeah. and got it out there. Uh-huh. And I think um, in, in highly creative people, both types uh, of motivations exist. One is I can, you know, I want to express myself and I want to express it like Dali. I want to express it in a way that uh, nobody today has seen because I see, I might believe that there is a place for this to exist, but nobody in my lifetime appreciated mm-hmm. it and they'll appreciate mm-hmm. it many years later. Architects mm-hmm. struggle with that so much of the time. Right. But uh, it doesn't mean that it, it isn't great design. It, it was meant for a time or a period where the rest of the environment was not yet ready to see that. Maybe you'll never be ready. <laughs> so what are the mm-hmm. aptitudes that one needs to be a designer? You really need to listen and see and observe. Especially in design, uh, you know, to the part where your motivation is to try and make things better for someone else. And of course, it's not free and it's not a social work you're doing. You, you actually do it to derive business value. You right. want to do it because uh, you will get paid for it. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it's not a non-profit initiative. Right. So for that to happen, you need to you need to be able to understand where problems lie, hmm. which you you can't do if you go in and say, "Here's how I'm going to solve your problem." You need to first have a very strong sense, ability to empathize hmm. with others, to see where their problems lie, and then you need to have a fairly good understanding of a business system and an ecosystem to see whether there is value in solving that problem and how that value could arrive. And you need skill uh, or a craft and expertise in the material that you're going to use to create that solution. So I think it's the combination of all those three that, that you're constantly working on. Okay. Yeah, no, this is uh, very nicely put. Uh, see, we talk about uh, you know, software as a, a knowledge era problem where the material that you work on or the material that works on ideas and all that is essentially people and their minds. And uh, interesting that you mentioned empathy. Mm. Right? Many times, some of the questions that we get from the teams that we coach, whether it is the designers or the developers, is that they see that they are at two different extremes, you know, where Probably the engineers want everything specified, everything you know, falling in mm-hmm. probably patterns that they already know, 
I may be a little uncomfortable to experiment with something uh, different mm-hmm. or you know, look at things differently. So, what have been some of the stories of uh, how you've been able to establish that empathy for both the users and also the people who are going to be creating these solutions? Okay, that, that I was wondering where the question was going. Okay, <laughs> so it's interesting that yeah. you would say that engineers sit at one end and designers sit at one end. I've actually found that to be uh, a little different in that every individual, regardless of where their skill lies, whether it's in solving a problem with code or whether it's in solving a problem with users, everybody has that skill part. The um, they don't necessarily have had experience in figuring out how to focus it to understand the business and the user need. Mm-hmm. So for it, and, and, I'll, and I'll say that even for designers, I've had designers come and tell me, you know, why do we have customers? Why do we have users? Let's not have them. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm great at doing this kind of work and, and you know, so I get paid for it. And I've um, heard, uh, you know, engineers or developers speak about we should actually go and build this new technology because you know why why are we struggling with trying to incrementally change something let's just start anew and build it anew but there are business reasons and the impact that it would have on the user so in all cases why are you doing what you do mm-hmm. is what we start with mm-hmm. framing the problem and that's mm-hmm. why one of the things that i do here is i run a workshop on problem framing mm-hmm. which helps uh, everybody involved in the problem solving business mm-hmm. understand what the problem is and be able to see it from the perspective of the customer first mm-hmm. then you're able to better assess and evaluate what you use to do that mm-hmm. some people do it inherently because they've had the experience and expertise and it yeah. seems like magic it seems like they're they're completely uh, what enlightened <laughs> people but that's because it comes from a place of having done this for so long. Mm. Uh, how do you help people just starting out in their career mm. to start seeing through these lens? And there are techniques. Mm-hmm. Problem framework workshop is actually a great way to do that. Mm. That's what I found. <laughs> so are these aptitudes mm. to be a designer trainable or does oh, it come that's nice so it's interesting because um, when I also look at um, having designers come and join me or work with me, I look for traits which are inherent in people which you can't build. Hmm. Curiosity. Mm-hmm. If you're not inherently curious or it's kind of been baked out of you, because all kids mm-hmm. are curious, okay, at yeah. the age of two or three, they're putting everything in their mouth, they're figuring out everywhere to climb in and out. Mm-hmm. But at some point, that, that seems to be taken away from you, um, and, mm-hmm. and it takes a very long time to build that back. Mm-hmm. So when you find people who are inherently curious, who, who are not afraid to ask why mm-hmm. and question the status quo, I found that that's a really good trait mm-hmm. to look for. Okay and uh, to build on. Mm-hmm. Social, being social or mm-hmm. at least being comfortable with people mm-hmm. is also one thing that is definitely needed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's very difficult to uh, open up and you know empathize with another, with your user or your customer if mm-hmm. you find it difficult to be vulnerable yourself. Mm-hmm. 
so those are some that you you look for those not necessarily skills okay but more of traits of people mm. and uh, those become easier to then help them learn the skills of uh, or the techniques and the methods <laughs> the other one which is uh, rare which you look for is this raw talent in in how you see certain things okay. uh, and that's like a skill like juggling you can teach juggling to a certain degree <laughs> after which you know people can juggle four things five things but are they going to continue to keep exerting the muscle to juggle 25 things and flaming swords mm. so for a designer you have to be driven to want to keep using those tools of the trade mm. so if you have that in hand motivation then yes you're trainable mm. but a lot of times people would take it to one level and say you know after this point i it doesn't drive me it's not something that is my passion so okay. passion is the third okay okay mm-hmm. uh, yeah juggling so <laughs> <laughs> okay. this is something that um, i've been asking huh. pretty much all the women guests that we've had huh. uh, also this being you know march <laughs> and uh, you know we've been having featuring women as around mm-hmm. the women's day and all that uh, either by nature or by compulsion women seem to be master jugglers okay mm-hmm. at work and outside work as well mm-hmm. okay. now the other aspect is the some of the uh, traits that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in terms of uh, not being flustered when things are probably not there or mm-hmm. trying to understand you know what you're cooking for who mm-hmm. you're cooking for and things like that this may be a controversial question but then, do women make better designers um it's actually interesting that you would ask that because mm-hmm. some of the times in during a hiring process we uh, we get asked are you biased towards women are you are you ending up hiring more women are you more sympathetic towards them uh, do male candidates not get a look in because of that i have to say that um, at least from my from my lens that uh, in a professional environment and i think in most cases after a point you look beyond the gender to the core of the person how they behave mm. uh, what their traits and everything are this may come down to the point of whether we say fundamentally women have a different set of traits than men i really don't believe that so much mm-hmm. um i believe that we may have had um, men and women may have had uh, differences in their physical structure which is why women are able to you know bend sideways uh, possibly and men could carry lot more weights mm-hmm. than they could today's uh, work environment doesn't require that degree of physical mm-hmm. challenge mm-hmm. so then it comes down to your environment and what you've been taught to believe and mm-hmm. what you've been uh, kind of programmed to think mm-hmm. so if i was hiring in helsinki or sweden mm-hmm. i don't think i would expect any difference there because that mm. country has literally changed the entire dynamic between thinking of genders as a differentiator mm-hmm. role and it took them 20 years to do that mm-hmm. so i i actually don't look at that aspect at all of whether men or women are better designers or not or better jugglers or not and okay. um, i think especially having had global teams mm-hmm. in the last 8 years mm. i've seen that more and more that there actually is no difference Hmm. There is really no difference. Very assuring to hear. Yeah, there is <laughs> absolutely no difference. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. So, um you spoke about a country as an example. Mm. So this is something that 
I've always been, you know, uh, yeah. confused about or maybe intrigued about. Even simple things like probably you know, painting a footpath or even laying a footpath or something like that. The attention to finish or probably saying that, oh, maybe it's a little Till crooked, right? It's yeah, okay. Yeah, it's like a bugbear. <laughs> okay. You got it, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think about that? How is is there a societal transformation in that, or? Uh... Um, I, you know, this is something, especially when I look at designers from different regions. It's not the gender difference. It's mm-hmm. actually your cultural difference of what your environment mm-hmm. told you is okay and what it will not forgive. Mm-hmm. So. In an environment where your footpaths are laid by machines, everything's at right angles to each other, mm-hmm. uh, there, if you see a deviation, mm-hmm. if you don't make it exactly mm-hmm. right angled, if you're consistent width of, uh, say, piping along a footpath mm-hmm. is not exactly the same amount, mm-hmm. that's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. Which is why the eye and attention of detail of every person there, not just designers, mm-hmm. anyone who lives there, mm. they can catch the deviation yes. from the norm very quickly. Mm. In a country where we um, where we do everything manually, mm-hmm. which means the second time that I make a petal on a flower, it's going to look different than the mm. first time I made it. The embroidery is never going to be continuous. It has its own variations, mm-hmm. but it means that any variation cannot be detected, hmm. which means if I, I choose to make the first the square in a footpath one size and the next <laughs> one a slightly different size, I'm not even going to see that difference hmm. because my environment uh, doesn't actually throw it up as a variation. Hmm. It's just the norm. Okay. So a lot of the time, the, uh, the we struggle, say, in, in kind of things that we do in India, we struggle in being able to do things that are pixel perfect perfection, mm, mm. which would be, you know, very natural in Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, people in countries like maybe Germany would struggle with expressing uh, the range of colors mm. and variety of forms that we can generate, you know, almost with the, your eyes closed and your left hand tied behind your back, mm-hmm. the way we'd be able to take it out. Mm. So I think the ability to leverage that mm-hmm. variation, it's not that one's right and one's wrong, mm. for that purpose, mm-hmm. which is the right one to do. Mm. Now, this is... The, the place where these start becoming difficult is when you talk about city planning, mm-hmm. when you talk about our traffic, when you talk yeah. about, uh, you know, systems uh-huh. that you build. Mm. Systems were built in um, Ashoka's time, right? right? right. He, he had the vision to, to yeah. build roadways everywhere across the world. Mm. Um, I think it just needs vision and pushing through something. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm. That is a piece that we could probably support better, I think. So, as a person who's looking at design globally Mm. in a product that has been very successful and growing virally and all that, what are some of the challenges that you face in having a global team, building a global product, but still, Mm. you need to have maybe some kind of consistent or predictable or expected kind of experience for the users? So, definitely one of the things that happens there is building a design system mm-hmm. and uh, and the design system that you build for consistency and standardization can be owned by only one team mm. and gets adopted everywhere okay. so it's the equivalent of every other uh, mm. large-scale mm-hmm. manufacturing mm. uh, system mm-hmm. 
the variations come from how do how does that product become relevant mm. to teams who are culturally so different here mm-hmm. versus teams who are culturally very different in china versus a team working together in say uh, the us mm. um, and that's where the product has to have flavors mm. or flexibility and that's why you do customization you allow for a base platform and mm-hmm. extend that so when we look at uh, what we're trying what we're doing here in india right now and what we've done in also my previous companies it's always been the core platform has to have one vision one team who's consistently working on it mm-hmm. whichever part of the world they're in mm-hmm. and the 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 objective for that team the purpose of that team mm-hmm. is actually to make things standardized it's not just it's not so much to make it delightful and you know that every time someone experiences something the system it it puts you into raptures no it's actually to be completely hidden users shouldn't know it exists it's mm-hmm. almost like that's your basic language nobody mm-hmm. looks at yeah. an alphabet anymore mm-hmm. they look at the poetry that's created mm-hmm. by it you're talking about creating that alphabet mm-hmm. that happens once mm-hmm. different teams will then create different poetry mm-hmm. So, do you have any? Since we call this software lifecycle stories, mm. you know, I always ask for our <laughs> guests to share something that, uh, in hindsight, probably very funny or humorous or obvious, but then uh, which could be a learning for our listeners. Mm. Saying that there something that you probably either uh, thought that uh, something it was a very cool idea, but then probably it didn't. Like, oh, or, I got or, the other. I got the flip version of that one. Yeah, or in fact, one of our guests spoke about a product that he had built, and he never foresaw a use case for that. It just completely when somebody asked him, he said, "Why would you ever want to do that?" He says, "No, this is exactly what I want to do." Yeah. So, uh, and which is a, which is a, yeah. Yeah, I I spoke recently about all the ways in which I completely failed in design because. Uh, all the things i thought which went which time proved me so wrong it's actually mm-hmm. practically embarrassing to think about it mm-hmm. um but i did find that for instance um a lot of assumptions that i made based on the information that i had at that time mm-hmm. which seemed very viable and we went ahead and built products it took 10 years mm-hmm. for that to come to its age because the ecosystem was not in place to see that okay. so today some you know some of the things that uh, we did in 1996 or even before 1997 1994 um we had um, i was working with um, a startup and the concept had been to have a handheld device mm-hmm. which could be used to unlock doors and to make payments and, mm-hmm. and we had all the scenarios of people being able to do that and oh, you know okay. that was even before the mobile phone came to india mm. and uh, it, it had been envisioned as one kind of a round device that you could use and okay. uh, do all of these things there was no bluetooth or nothing so it it, it was entirely needed mm-hmm. but impossible to build at that time because it didn't exist mm. and uh, we didn't take that any further but 10 years later when the company reached this particular stage those things got pulled out again oh, and okay. we we went ahead and built a lot of stuff there in near field in um, nfc yeah. and uh, using bluetooth to make all these changes so the things you dream about I, and i strongly believe science fiction is actually really great for <laughs> figuring out what the future is because <laughs> you dream of a need being fulfilled Hmm. 
it becomes real when the technology is real <laughs> but that need existed yeah yeah i'm reminded of one quote from douglas adams one of my favorite uh, thing he talks about uh, there was a time when civilization thought that you know, digital watches were the ultimate in technology <laughs> and he says there was somebody who invented the uh, a radio mm. now which you just wave in the general direction of the station and it will play ah but then in his typical style he says but the problem was you had to still sit infuriatingly still to listen to any one station because <laughs> <laughs> <Now, laughs> also the limitation probably yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that that's actually what happens so it's interesting uh-huh. the maturity model of experience design is mm-hmm. is actually defined by first the invention of a technology mm-hmm. and then a use case happening jan mm-hmm. spools actually got a really great mm-hmm. model in mm-hmm. place for that and then the amount of time it takes from def- def- realizing say the technology can do something and then figuring out what is it that we can use it to do mm-hmm. and then building that experience and making it viable but mm. then after that fitting it into an ecosystem that adopts it and makes it spread virally mm. because if that doesn't happen it's going to be limited only to those few mm-hmm. people who use it mm. that cycle is 20 years oh so how do you how do you look ahead for two generations <laughs> <laughs> this is always a yeah. challenge of looking yeah. ahead so um I know other designers in the uh, manufacturing industry space mm-hmm. which who work with physical mm-hmm. product design mm-hmm. and and if you're industri- doing industrial manufacturing you don't have the luxury in software of pulling it back and doing mm-hmm. something right you mm-hmm. you are looking at 15 years in the future this thing that I design now has to be on the road mm-hmm. it has to work for that period yeah. I'm in a kitchen and last uh, we we don't look that far ahead mm-hmm. we look we look uh, at building things that people need right now yeah we look at, we have the ability to make a change to what people feel right now mm. so there is a, a there's a lovely um, illustration that um, one of the designers had shown in one meeting uh, he said it's the equivalent of uh, you know traveling by by road mm-hmm. as a designer in okay. software yeah. you can reduce the bumps and make that road smooth mm-hmm. because you've uh, filled in all the potholes or you can strip yeah, yeah the analogy of uh, laying out a road and when you're traveling on a road when you've got potholes you have many ways in which you can address them mm-hmm. one is filling the potholes right now with you know a little bit of tar and you know that in next week it's going to come off and you won't need to do it again. you can relay that road Mm. and you can put white concrete mm-hmm. and you know that it's going to take you yeah. uh 2 months to fix that you could build a flyover mm-hmm. in concrete and make sure that now for years you don't have any yeah. problem we could do any of that in software we could do that in parallel mm. and one of the things with user experience designers mm-hmm. is that we we try and solve for the future but we also mm-hmm. try and make sure you're easing what's happening right now mm-hmm. and that ease Hmm. of experience means mm-hmm. you could either fill it you could put up a sign which says this road has potholes and here are the potholes uh-huh. um, how do you choose to help the user find it easier to yeah. navigate what is now mm-hmm. that's what we look at mm-hmm. but okay. that didn't answer your question of how do we see the future yeah. so um, i might digress a little bit and say that there's a technique called future scenarios mm-hmm. and it starts a little bit with need identification mm-hmm. So if you project into the future and we don't do 10 years mm. or we could do 3 years to 5 okay. years. 
and you look at what are uh, the trends that you're seeing in behaviors among users mm -hmm. in whichever market that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. You also look at uh, you look at what is the technology pace mm -hmm. and what would that look like three years in the future. Okay. You look at the environment and what does that look like three five years in the future. Mm -hmm. What does the uh, so sociological Social elements yeah. look like in the future right. and the political environment in the future. Yeah, something like the pestle analysis. Yes. Yeah? Okay. And then in that world that is yeah. the future, what are people going to feel like and behave right. like? And that's where you do need identification. Mm -hmm. Then you look at okay now if that's going to be a need if if uh, you know in the future traffic is just going to be so bad what is just going to be so bad people are not going to be living in different kinds of remote spaces mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know internet is ubiquitous mm -hmm. connectivity is ubiquitous then uh, how does our software behave then mm -hmm. what are the needs that what is it going to need to be yeah. And it cannot be requiring one person to manage and set up for a thousand people. Mm -hmm. Each person has to be independently able to mm -hmm. do whatever they need. Yeah. So it's just identifying that part. Mm -hmm. So even though you said that you didn't really see a big difference in terms of gender yeah. in the earlier point, uh, there are still a couple of points that keep coming up okay. in conversations huh. with uh, women. You know, one is the need to take career breaks. Ah, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so that is one aspect. The second one is about, of course, you know, balancing the demands at work mm. and home, where uh, at least the expectations of support, mm. you know, both at work and outside work. Mm. So what am I, I think I'd love to head, yeah. get your thoughts, particularly if design as a career makes it easier for women to take breaks or get back in because in technology one point that some of them say is that it's changing so fast if I'm away for six months or one year I don't know what these new languages that these people are using or something oh, okay. else so yeah. is there a kind of a re-entry challenge that's an interesting point I haven't thought of it outside of uh, my own domain mm -hmm. in the area that I've been in um, and, and I've actually spoken about it saying so the reason why I shifted careers is actually because I had my my son and mm. he was it was a difficult pregnancy, so I had to take off from work mm. um, for quite a, quite a few months. But um, and that break made me rethink about what I could do, and that's when I moved into software. Otherwise, I might still be a textile mm -hmm. designer. Mm. So I said I had the advantage mm -hmm. of being forced to take a break. Okay. I don't think a lot of people get that opportunity, so mm. they continue down one path and. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's also largely how you choose to look at it. Is it an opportunity or do you feel it's a setback that you should right. now mm -hmm. think about, oh, I'm not going to be able to get back into that. Mm -hmm. What else could you do? Mm -hmm. um, so I would, would say mentally, where are you mm -hmm. in looking at opportunities as and when they come okay. and addressing those. The, the part about, and, and this is not new, I'm, I'm very old, so I've been in this business for a long time and, and hence it's not that the time that I was a young designer that there was gender equality and everyone believed in it. But I feel that the ability to have open candid conversations with mm -hmm. your managers and with everyone you work with helps a lot in uh, you know kind of giving you that support for things when you need it. 
So when you establish, and I find that in teams also, you know, mm-hmm. I find really well-functioning teams are ones that communicate well with each other. Then yeah. they learn to support each other and build on top of right. each other. Mm-hmm. So what kind of teams are you building at home? Hmm. Have you told your husband, have you told your mother-in-law really how important this job is and do they, or how important it is for you to have a meaningful career because then you can become independent and <laughs> um, do that because then they'll support you. But if they don't understand that, it's very difficult to have that kind of support come for you hmm. if you don't set it up for yourself. Yeah. So for me, I believe the whole way to bring things forward and not just for women, for mm-hmm. men also. Mm-hmm. Because I think men also feel very pressurized sometimes to say that the expectation is that I have to be working mm-hmm. all the time and I mm-hmm. can't take a break and I want to you know, look after my kid. Mm-hmm. So having that conversation, identifying what you want to be able to do together mm-hmm. um, or independently and building on that I think is, is sort of very critical mm-hmm. for everyone mm-hmm. to have a rich life which you would enjoy. And I think that that purpose is actually a nice one. I spend a lot of time, equal amount of time helping designers understand financial independence. Mm -hmm. Because if you cannot figure out your finances, how do you think that your business is going to trust you to take financial decisions for them? (laughs) And then if you're doing that for the business, why are you not doing it at home? Or at least understanding what's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. In, in some cases, I've seen uh, you know either spouse yeah. runs the finances, whoever's got a better aptitude for <laughs> right. it. But both know what's happening. Mm-hmm. For me, I, it's been there with uh, Always look mm-hmm. at it from that perspective. <laughs> okay. Um, <coughs> how was your shift from textiles to software? Now, other than yeah. having to need to <laughs> switch to software, now, how do you enjoy being in software? Oh, that way. I thought yeah. you meant that part where I, you know, re-entry into that space. Yeah, entry into that space was yeah. tough, huh? mm-hmm. Because you've established your chops and your expertise in one field, and then mm-hmm. you go into an area where you're you don't know anything, <laughs> and what you thought you knew or you thought you had ego about. <laughs> certain things you suddenly realize that you know if you don't understand the material mm. you are not going to be able to build the right things mm. with it and understanding that that was a pretty rude shock mm. you know, having someone tell me also look mm. if I had my way I wouldn't have hired you you don't know anything about web, web. <laughs> okay so mm. um, in, in in that way it was very a very sobering realization but mm. I think I had great technical people with me who were mm. very patient and mm. if you keep asking them they will explain things to you so oh, nice so that and what I thought also worked well for me was in textiles there is a structure mm-hmm. to how you weave there mm. is a there is you need to understand the math you need to understand the logic mm-hmm. which made the aspect of software really easier Easy. to understand because there are rules to it. There, okay. there, there's a way to understand how programming gets done. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you crack that, you, it may not be a place I wanted to spend my time, but mm-hmm. I got the logic okay. of it and then, then yeah. you can work with it. So you need to understand that what makes material happen mm-hmm. to be able to work with it. Mm-hmm. And then of course, when mobile, when I worked in mobile for 12 years, mm-hmm. every day you'd wake up and you didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. It was so exciting. <laughs> but that for me is, I like to learn all the time. 
Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people who are like curiosity. Ah, yeah. Check. How am I going to deal with this? This thing is changing so much. But I think change. You have to accept change because things are not going to stop changing because you didn't <laughs> like it. So you might yeah. as well just get on that yeah. uh, bus and stick with it. Mm. I love technology uh, because of that mm-hmm. because it changes. I love the fact that we're now in a space where technology has gone to that part of okay, we can do this, we can have those use cases. Now we're looking at saying okay, it's everywhere. It has to be meaningful for users. Mm-hmm. It has to. It shouldn't dominate the user. Mm-hmm. It should help the users do whatever they want. So mm-hmm. we're at this really lovely point. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what's going to come tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Maybe more yeah. kinds of technology. <laughs> And more. complexities for the users to be solved yeah i think uh, probably even embracing it further into the human system which is mm-hmm. what's happening now mm-hmm. um, i think that's really fascinating what's happening with ai what's happening mm-hmm. with machines taking over decisions yeah. from users some of those scenarios are scary almost all of those <laughs> yeah. are scary it it also depends on what we define ourselves as do we feel do we want to feel that we are in control or are we okay with giving up that control mm. which is why i think each of us struggles with it at a different level mm. yeah good uh, so thanks vandana i think it's been a very very power packed conversation there are a lot of things i'm sure our listeners would uh, I'd like to think over and then probably get back with uh, no questions. Sure. We'll pass them on to you. Great. Yeah. I look forward yeah. to that. Thank you yeah. for having me. Sure. Yeah. Ciao. Thank you. If you like the show and would like to share your experiences with the community or know someone else who might want to do that please get in touch with us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com there is podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com please rate the show on podchaser stitcher iTunes or any other podcast client that you find us on please also share our episodes with your friends and others in your network if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on our show do write to us at this email address podcasts@pm-powerconsulting.com